the series, How'd We Get Here? The series we've been in since the beginning of January. We are finally six months later wrapping up today. Um, we have seen how God made this promise in Genesis 3 that he would send someone to go to war with Satan and sin and hell. And throughout the history of the Bible, as we've walked through this series, we've seen God giving us these glimpses and these ideas of who that person would be. Last week, we looked at the final, the arrival of Jesus. Jesus shows up on the scene, and he changes everything. Instead of God speaking through people, instead of God speaking through the prophets and the judges and the kings, instead, now God in the flesh dwelt with his creation. And then Jesus' death and resurrection was the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise made by God in Genesis 3. In coming back, he proved, in coming back from the dead, in being resurrected, he proved that Satan's power and sin's influence on this world is limited and that God is more powerful. He gave us the gift of salvation. And this morning, we're going to look at another gift that was given to us, the gift of the church. And we're going to look at some of the values, some of the things that were important to the New Testament church, some of the values and things that they focused on. Um, so we're going to start in the book of Acts this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to start right at chapter 1, Acts uh, 1. There should be a Bible somewhere near you. If you don't own a Bible, you can feel free to keep that. Um, we're going to start in Acts 1. I'm going to pray, and then we are going to jump in. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we enter this place today wanting to see more of you, wanting to know you more. God, we come with a holy expectation that you want to teach us this morning, that you want to challenge us, that you want to rebuke us sometimes, and that you want to encourage us. Lord, as we open up your word, we pray for clarity and for focus. Lord, let nothing come from my lips that isn't from you. And as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Thank you for who you are and what you are doing in this church, what you have been doing for generations, and what you continue to do. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So before we get into Acts 1, I want to take a minute and think about what it was like to be a disciple of Jesus. Because the life of the disciples is is got a lot of twists and turns in it, right? They start and they're just regular guys. The guys that Jesus called as his disciples were fishermen, were tax collectors, family men, just regular dudes. And then Jesus calls them. This rabbi calls and says, follow me. I'm going to teach you. I want you to spend time with me. I want you to be with me. And for three years, they follow Jesus. They see him teach. They see him perform miracles. They get to ask him questions. They get to learn from him. They get to this point where they believe that he is who he says he is. He is the son of God. He is God in the flesh. And then one night, he's arrested. And they see him get beaten. And they see him get executed on a cross. And for three days, their world is completely turned upside down. It looks like evil has won. There is darkness in the land and it's chaos. And then that Sunday morning comes and he is risen. He comes back from the dead, is resurrected fully, physically, actually alive, and he starts appearing to them. And not only to them, but to hundreds of other people. Jesus starts showing up and is continuing to teach and spend time with them. And after he does this, and he spends some time with his disciples, he gives his disciples one last instruction before he leaves. And it's found in Matthew 28, 18. It says, Now 
Um, it says, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Gospel of Mark gives a similar account of this, of this um, command, this great commission that we call it. And then Mark tags on a little bit at the end in Mark 16, 19, and 20. It says then, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Luke's gospel gives us another little bit of detail about what these last couple of moments with Jesus looked like. Luke 24, 50-52 says, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now, John's gospel doesn't actually give us any account of this, but the book of Acts does. And so we're going to pick it up in Acts 1, verse 6. It says, So so when when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was, lifted up and cl- he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you is, into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we have these multiple accounts of Jesus ascending into heaven after the resurrection. Multiple accounts of what this was look like, these final conversations that he had with his disciples. And really, they center all around this, the fact that Jesus promises them, I am going to send you one to help. I'm going to send you a Holy Spirit. He is going to empower you. And specifically, he is going to empower you to be able to do this last command I have for you, this last great commission I have for you that we talked about in Matthew 28, to go into all the world, to preach what I, had, what I have taught you, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus is gone. Jesus has ascended back to heaven to sit and wait until that final day of judgment when he'll return. You've got to think about that day. They watch him ascend into heaven, and then they're all standing around. And the disciples and all these believers, you've got to figure they kind of turned and looked at each other and said, now what do we do? How in the world do we make this happen? And so it's from this final instruction from Jesus, from this final command, and from the promise of Jesus of the Holy Spirit that we see in the book of Acts, the church is born. And really the book of Acts and the early church is trying to answer this question of, how do we do this? How do we live this life that Jesus called us to? How do we do this thing that he has said without him? And so what we're going to look at this morning are some of the elements, some of the things that were important to the new believers, to the new church, uh, the New Testament church. And so we're going to pick it up uh, first in Acts chapter 2. So flip over in Acts 2. One of the first things that they did, one of the things that marks the New Testament church throughout the book of Acts and into the New Testament letters that we'll talk about a little bit later is that they preached Jesus. They talked about Jesus. So Acts 2, verse 22 says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, 
as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is a, just a small snippet of the Apostle Peter is preaching to the men, and he's preaching to them about Jesus. He proclaims, this Jesus who you know, you saw him, you heard him, that was God in the flesh, and he was killed. Many of you were part of that mob of people who were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. That was God in the flesh who was killed. Peter preaches throughout the book of Acts multiple times about Jesus and about him being crucified to him, him being risen, him being ascended back into heaven. And as Peter preaches throughout the book of Acts, we see hundreds and thousands of people becoming Christians. Hearing the gospel message and becoming Christians, having this new life given to them. And Peter preached, I mean, if you read that sermon in Acts 2, if you read when Peter preaches, Peter's sermons are not, they're not super intelligent, they're not super intellectual, they're not on this crazy, you know, scholarly plan. Peter was a fisherman. He was not the smartest guy in the room. He was never going to be a super scholar, but Peter preached what he knew. He told people Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and Jesus gave forgiveness of sins, and that there was new life to be had. Peter preached what he knew. And when he preached, he had no worries. He didn't try and come up with the, the most clever sermon with full of alliteration and catchy illustrations. He preached what he knew. He preached the gospel. And people responded. Hundreds and thousands of people are becoming Christians because they preached Jesus. No matter what threat they might have from the government, no matter what threat they might have from the authorities, the apostles, the New Testament church kept on talking about Jesus. They would not let this go. They would not stop proclaiming Jesus. Even under the threat of death, they would not stop. And this was a pillar marker for the New Testament church. We also know that they gathered together frequently. They were involved in each other's lives. At first, they were going to temple courts daily. Every day, they were going and celebrating and rejoicing, and they were gathering together and preaching the gospel, and they were sharing the gospel together. And then as the numbers of this New Testament church, of the, of the church grew, they couldn't meet in the temple courtyards anymore because there were so many people. And they couldn't go every day because so many people, they still had to go to work, they still had to do things, and so it became too cumbersome for them. And so we see in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it talks about them meeting once a week. Somewhere in there, the leaders of the church said, okay, we're going to gather once a week. As one big group, we're going to get together once a week. Sunday mornings. They started to gather Sunday mornings once a week to worship, to teach. But that didn't stop them from getting together at other times as well. If you go in chapter 2, skip down to verse 44. It says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They got together. They, they would meet in each other's homes. They would find different reasons to get together throughout the week. It talks about them distributing finances, that they would pool money, and that if someone in the church, if some Christian was in need, if someone needed help, they would pool some finances together and they would distribute it as they needed it. But the thing about that is that 
The only way for that, for that to work is that people had to actually interact, right? You had to actually ask someone, how are you? How are things going? You had to be willing to get into the mess of people's lives. And then vice versa, or like, you know, they also had to answer and say, you know what, I'm hurting. I need some help. They'd be willing to let people into the mess and ugliness and say, you know what, I need help. I need some finances. I need something. You see, this community was engaged. They were intentional with each other. They were engaged in each other's lives. It talks about them regularly having meals together. Regularly, they would get together. See, there was no, you couldn't just run off and like meet at the corner restaurant. That wasn't a thing back then. If you wanted to have a meal with someone, you invited them into your home. It was probably the most intimate thing you could do back then. There was no going out. It meant that you had to spend the day cooking a meal. Spend the day and spend your finances preparing. And spend hours preparing food. And then you were welcoming someone into your home. We've all had to host people at our house. You clean really well, or at least make it look like you did. Because you have people in, and it's an important thing. And also, if you're the person being invited, that's intimate. That's, that's you understanding, you know what? These people want me to come into the sometimes literal mess of their house and their family. To be the one invited was a big deal. It was an honor and a blessing to be welcomed into someone's home. When Sarah and I were still dating, there was a couple in the church we were going to who said, you know what, we just want to pour into you guys. We want to spend some time and, and help you guys, you know, be a better couple, and, and you know, if you guys want to move towards marriage, we want to help just be part of your lives and help set a good foundation for you. And so every week, we would go over to their house for dinner. We would bring food, and we'd hang out, and they'd share parts of their lives and talk to us and, and ask questions about our relationship and just kind of talk about their marriage, how they, were, how they worked together, how they you know, were parents, all these things, and they would let us into their house. And it was just this most intimate, beautiful time to get to see how they were as a couple, how they were as parents, and to just ask questions. And they let us just poke and, and just be, and be part of their house, and be part of their family. And it was so important and so impactful on Sarah and I and on our relationship. There's something special about being welcomed into someone's house. And the New Testament church, this was a part of their DNA. They met in each other's homes. They met in the courtyards. They met wherever they could. They were intentional with each other. And it says also that they prayed often. Prayer plays a huge role in the beginning of the church. In the beginning of the church, excuse me. In Acts 1, we see them pray for guidance in making decisions. When they're trying to have to replace the, the next of the 12, they pray beforehand. In Acts 4, they pray for courage and boldness to continue preaching the name of Jesus even under the threat of death. In the passage I read earlier in Acts 2, we see it was part of the regular ministry. They were gathering together to pray. You see, to sum up the church, when it was beginning, when they were trying to figure out how in the world do we do this, how do we bring this community together, as they were trying to figure it out, they, they thought about, well, what did Jesus do? What did the stuff he did? And so they start to get involved in each other's life. They make sure that they are actively engaged in each other's life. They're spending time together. They're eating meals together. They're worshiping together. They're praying together. The disciples have just said, okay, these are the things we did with Jesus, so let's do it on a little bit bigger fashion. They were intentional with each other. Because you see, community and relationships, like what is built in the New Testament church, doesn't just happen. It doesn't just magically occur. 
We talked about this in the membership class that we have, is that you can't expect other people to build community for you. It's on each of us as individuals to take those steps to engage with each other, to ask hard questions. And when someone asks you a question, to actually let them into some of your world. To not just put on the fine, great, busy, but to actually let them know what's going on. To start sharing our lives, sharing the mess with each other. We have to be intentional because community doesn't just magically happen. And so we see the New Testament church starting to thrive. They're building, they're intentional with each other. They're building this community. But it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. As the church began, there was also opposition. And there was persecution. If you read the book of Acts, the Apostle Peter spends much of the time that he's mentioned in the book getting beaten up, getting thrown in jail, getting busted out of jail, usually by angels, and running from, and running from the law, all the while proclaiming Jesus is God. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins in our place, and he was risen, and he is with God in heaven. Over and over, Peter is preaching this over and over he is getting in trouble for it. It was great trouble for the Christians. And really, if we're going to talk about persecution, if we're going to talk about the church being under attack, and we're going to talk about the New Testament church being under attack, we have to talk about Saul. Saul was, he was a bad dude. <laughs> we first meet him in Acts 7. Saul is there holding the coats of some men who are taking giant rocks to stone Stephen. One of the New Testament Christians who proclaimed God, they gathered around to stone him to death. And it says that Paul was there, Saul was there, watching over their coats and being in agreement with what's about to happen. We learn that he's a Pharisee. He is someone well-trained in the Scriptures, in the Jewish law. He was an intellect. He was a heady kind of guy. And he had one of the greatest, most respected rabbis as his teacher. Saul was on his way to becoming a huge, big shot as a Pharisee. He was so adamant about taking down these Jesus followers that he, le he leads a large persecution against the Christians in Jerusalem. It's so bad that the Christians have to scatter all over the place. And because of that, what was Jesus' command? You're going to go into Judea. You're going to go into Samaria. And because of the persecution, because it got so violent in Jerusalem, the Christians scattered to Judea and Samaria, places that they would never normally go live. Places they would never normally go stay. It's like a Bears fan moving and living to Green, in Green Bay. You just don't go there. But these Christians had to do that for safety. You see, while Saul thinks he is doing this great thing and he's doing this damage to the church and he's going to knock down this thing, actually what ends up happening are all these Christians get scattered all over the land. And as they get scattered, they were confined in Jerusalem, and now they're scattered all over the land, and they explode in the region. They go all over the place, taking the truth of the gospel with them. And so now this message that was confined here because they were all staying in Jerusalem, they were worshiping in Jerusalem, is scattered throughout the land, and the gospel is going out. Through persecution, through the ugly mess of what Saul was trying to do, the gospel is thriving, the gospel is flourishing. And so one day, Saul is on his way to a city named Damascus. And on his way, he has with him approval from the leaders of the, the synagogue there that if he meets any Christians, he can arrest them. He can bring charges against them. 
But it's on this road to Damascus that everything changes for him. Jump over to Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 3. It says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, the man, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision. in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said go to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Paul's whole life changes on this road to Damascus. He meets Jesus, and everything for him changes. He even changes his name and goes by the name Paul. Those who grew up in the church, you've probably read that story, and you know you hear that, and you say, okay, well, he, he gets converted here, right? And he goes and gets baptized, and then he starts preaching, and he's planting churches, and he's all doing all kinds of different things immediately. But in actuality, that's not how this story goes. During that time, after he's baptized, Paul takes somewhere between 12 to 14 years. 12 to 14 years where he's studying, he's learning. He's teaching a little bit. He's teaching a little bit of what he knows. He goes into some courtyards, he has some conversations, but he is not actually sent out by the church. He is not Paul the church planner who's changing everything for about 14 years. And I bring that up because... You know, sometimes we put, these, we put these timelines in our head. We, we try and map out, this is how our life is supposed to go. Here's the timeline I'm supposed to be on. Where we should be and what we should be doing and by when. And if that timeline gets thrown off, our whole world comes crashing down, right? I'm supposed to finish school in this amount of time. I'm supposed to have this job by this. I'm supposed to be married by here, have kids by here. And if somewhere in that timeline things go, go off kilter, Everything is wrong. We freak out. While in seminary, um, I failed a, uh, a class. I failed a Hebrew class. And when I got my grade back, I felt like a complete failure. I felt like I had let all kinds of people down. I had this perfect plan of how seminary was going to go, how quickly I was going to get done with it, how much it was going to cost, I had this planned out, you know, 
Sarah had stopped taking classes so that she could help support me so that we could get through seminary, how much it was going to cost, how much it was going to cost, and then how that was going to affect our marriage and getting engaged and all these different things. And I had everything mapped out, and then I failed this class, and it threw off the whole timeline. And I felt like a wreck. I felt like a failure because people had, had supported me. People had put time and energy into me. People had offered to help me pay for school. I had all these different things, and I failed, and I felt like I let everyone down, and it was the worst. I felt about that big. But in actuality, looking back on it, it ended up being a great blessing. The next semester, because I couldn't take language classes, because I couldn't carry on, um, I basically just took a bunch of pastoral classes. I took a bunch of classes about, you know, preaching. I took a bunch of classes about just, like, how to do ministry and just stuff that, like, reminded me about what God was calling me to do and stuff that reminded me that this is what I was made to do and, and I enjoyed doing and I enjoyed studying. And along with that, um, at the time, the church we were going to needed a pulpit fill and they asked me, and I got to preach. For the first time, I got to preach for a month straight. And it was awesome for me. It was a, it was a great reaffirming for me that I got to serve the people that, that helped me and had poured into me. And it was a good reaffirming for me that this is what I was called to be doing. What ended up, what, what took me totally off course, what messed up my whole timeline, once I got through it and I look back, I see it as a huge blessing for me. Your plans aren't perfect. I know you think you have it all mapped out to the minute and that everything is going to go perfect, but this world is broken and things get dis you get distracted and you get sent off course. Your plans aren't perfect. Paul waited for 13 years. Right, and that's, that's the other side of the corner. Sometimes we feel like God wants us to do something. We have no idea what it is, but it's God, I know you want me in ministry. I know you want me serving in the church. I know you want me to do something. You've given me these specific gifts and talents, and God, I want to figure out how to use them. And so sometimes what we do is we try and force the issue. Instead of seeking counsel, instead of being in prayer, we just jump at whatever opportunity we see because it's, well, God wants me to do this, so I'm going to just jump into it. The Apostle Paul, one of the most influential people in the New Testament, he wrote a large chunk of the New Testament, was saved and then sat on the bench for 13 years, being taught, asking questions, spending time with people. Think about that. 13 years he waited. And after that 13 years, after he had enough time to, to be trained and be taught up, he becomes this great missionary and church planner. Paul makes a complete 180 from what he was. He goes from persecuting Christians to tra traveling throughout the region, starting churches. He would go from city to city, preaching the gospel. He would go from city to city, and he would make this huge impact on people. And usually made them pretty upset. Because like I said, when you want to talk about persecution, not only did Paul do some serious persecuting, but once he becomes a Christian, much like Peter, he's in and out of jail. He's getting beaten up. At one point, the city, the people grab him, and they stone him so badly outside the city that they thought he was dead. And he got up, dusts himself off, he goes back into the city preaching. He gets shipwrecked. He gets snake bitten. He gets thrown in jail. Over and over again, the last, at the very end of the book of Acts, he's on house arrest. 
It's not like, and then at the end, he gets through and everything's great. No, we end, and the last time you hear from him, he's in jail. Paul spends most of his ministry being chased from city to city by angry mobs. But as he traveled, he started these churches. And he would start these churches in cities where not only was there no church, but these cities were actively and notoriously full of idols and pagan worship. Most of the city culture, he would go in and preach the gospel, and the city culture was so wrapped up in idol worship that he would go in, he would preach the gospel, people would get saved, and then Christians would say, well, I want to stop doing this. People would get mad because they were losing money, because they couldn't sell their idols anymore, because they couldn't sell all these things that they used for pagan worship anymore, because the Christians said, we don't need that. And it messed with the entire economics of the city. Their entire industry was built on this. And so to go into these places and tell them that the thing that they thought was most important, the thing that they thought their lives revolved around was wrong, was not the number one thing, it would cause this major uproar. But Paul knew he had a job to do. And so even though he wasn't there when Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize you got to figure, based on the way he lived, based on the way he did ministry, one of the disciples said, this is the last thing Jesus told us to do. Go into all the world, make disciples, teach them about Jesus. And so one of the ways Paul would do this is after he planted these different churches, he would go back and visit again, and then if he couldn't go visit them, he would write letters to them. He would write letters to the churches he helped start. And so that's what most of the New Testament is. Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians, these are to churches in these cities. And when you read these letters, most of the content of Paul's letters were directed not at a specific leader or a specific group of people, but at the church as a whole. Because Paul knew it was the responsibility of the church as a whole, as a community, to seek the well-being of the community. And so he would write to them, and it's most of the New Testament letters are, this is how you guys should be functioning. I've heard you have this issue. Here's what you should do to address it. I hear that there are fights coming amongst you. Here's how to address it. The issues and contents of those letters still play today. We still read them today. Sneak peek, in the fall, we're going to start studying the book of Philippians. Why do we still study these letters that were written to a specific group at a specific time in a specific place? How can they still possibly have an impact on us in Chicago in 2016? Partially, it's because the Word of God is alive and active and true. And it's also because community is hard. Doing church together is hard. And we've seen throughout this series, we fall into the same traps over and over again. Think about the nation of Israel, how many times they were stuck in this cycle of being, one, being with God, following God, and then falling off into idol worship, falling off into these temptations, and they would get lost, and they would get messed up, and then they'd have to get called back over and over for generation upon generation. And it's the same thing for us today. We read these letters, we read the things that the church struggled with, and then we look around and we say, you know what, we're still struggling with some of this stuff. We're still struggling with some of these issues. We fall into the same traps over and over, but it's why we have to continue to study and continue to read and learn and ask questions. Because this is, it still matters. This book still matters. It still has life in it. God's story is not done. 
Right, we've talked about this series, How Did We Get Here? The story of God redeeming things back to himself. The story's not finished. We continue being part of the story God is writing. He is still redeeming all things back to himself. There is still darkness in this world. Apparently some physical, actual darkness. There's still darkness in this world. There's still brokenness in this world. There's still stuff we have to deal with that are the consequences of sin. But in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that pain and brokenness, God is still doing amazing things. He is still raising up men and women to be his representatives on this earth. He is still giving us these glimpses, these moments, these instances where it looks where what it, it's what it's going to look like on that day when Christ finally returns to finish what he started. God is still giving us these moments that says this is what it's going to be when Christ comes to set everything right. Because he still has something to do. He still has something to accomplish when he comes back. Right, that promise in Genesis 3 was that he would stomp out the head of the serpent. He would put an end to sin and death and hell and pain. But we still have to deal with that stuff. So there's still something Christ has to do. And so in the meantime, there is still a great need for the church. There is still a great need for a church to be thriving. See, we get to be a, the church is a blessing. The church is a gift. We get to be part of what God is doing. Much like the Christians in the New Testament, we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, now what? How do we do this? How do we figure out how to do community together? We have to ask ourselves this question regularly. How do we do these things how do we do the things that we know have value? How do we incorporate prayer and reading scripture and regu regularly gathering and being involved in each other's lives and doing it in a way that makes sense in this generation in Chicago, in Roscoe Village? And it's a question we're constantly asking. We're constantly trying to figure out. It's part of why we're doing summer the way we are, to just spend some time this summer being in each other's lives, getting into each other's lives, and building some relationships and letting some of these church events that we have going on be a spark, be a catalyst to start building relationships outside of that so that we don't have to just interact with each other on Sunday mornings and like CF-sponsored events. But we can start to just build friendships. That's what we're trying to figure out. How to be the church. How to show people that what we have going on here, what is in the Bible, the gospel that we preach every week, that it still matters. Because you see, we as the church, we as the Little C Church in Roscoe Village and as the Big C part of the global church, we bring a message of hope. We have hope to give people. We have hope for a day when there's something better coming. Something better. New life is coming. God redeeming all things to himself is coming. We have hope in a God who sees Christians, who sees us not as sinners, not as marked by the things we have done and the things that have been done against us and the things we have failed to do, but rather as his sons and daughters. We bring a message of hope to people. Hope in Jesus and in his life, his death, burial, and resurrection. Hope that says, look, that thing you're trying to fill with money and power and fame and celebrity and all of these different things, that thing that you can't quite fill, that, that thing that you're trying to find fulfillment in is going to let you down over and over again. But Jesus won't. 
His life, death, burial, and resurrection as the payment for our sins, there you find fulfillment. There you find hope. There you find grace and rest. Because what Jesus did on the cross pays the penalty for our sins in our place so that we don't experience the wrath of God. He already took care of it. This world desperately needs to hear that message. This world is hurting. This city is hurting. And we desperately need to be a place where the gospel is proclaimed. And it's great if we say it, and the word has to be proclaimed. I am a big proponent that the gospel needs to actually be preached. The words actually need to get preached. But if we aren't living it, if, if our community isn't looking like a community, what does that say to the world? What kind of hope does that give to the world? Because we know, Christians, that it's not just a head thing. That the gospel changes our lives. It changes the way that we see the world. It changes the way that we are spouses, the way that we are students, the way that we work. It changes everything because we were shown grace, immeasurable, huge, giant amounts of grace. And so now we are called to show it to others. We can find our identity and our satisfaction in Christ. How do we get here is the question we've been asking for six months. And ultimately, it's because of God. It's because God has used normal, flawed, broken, messed up people to tell a story of how great he is. That over and over throughout history, God has found these people who you would look at and you would get a little bit of the biography of their life and say, there's no way anything good can come from that person's life. And God has stepped in and said, watch this. I can do something amazing here. And he hasn't stopped doing that. The story isn't over. He is inviting us into that story. He's inviting us to be part of that. Which means we have to be intentional. It means we can't let live this passive life and just let everything go by us. We can't let the opportunities, the community that we have, pass us by. God is still doing a great work, and he is inviting us to join in. We have to take the initiative. We have to take and be intentional with responding. Let's pray.